1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue our study in Paul's letter to the Church of God in Corinth, a letter written 2,000 years ago to a struggling church in a Greek city called Corinth. Corinth, if you will remember from our previous studies, was a very cosmopolitan city. It's full of trade, full of money, full of influence. The city is full of people who consider themselves to be elite, to be proud of their accomplishments, proud of themselves. It might be compared to other influential metropolitan cities of today or even like Hollywood. The Corinthians considered themselves to be wise, to be discerning, to be astute judges of that which is true and that which is beautiful, too sophisticated to settle for anything less than the best, anything less than impressive. And significantly for our study this morning, the Corinthian mindset of cultural and intellectual elitism had infiltrated the church. The Corinthian church had been influenced by these worldly standards of what is true and good and beautiful. And the church members were judging the quality of their leadership by standards of worldly philosophy and rhetoric. They wanted pastors and leaders that were more impressive according to the worldly standards. They wanted a church that was full of influential and impressive people. People that would influence and impress the world. They didn't want to be associated with leadership that was less than beautiful and not quite compelling. So in short, they were valuing things that the world values, which meant that they had no use for Paul, a man of modest appearance and modest natural abilities. And so last week, we went through the first part of chapter 4, where Paul explains his view of Christian leadership. As we saw, we are called, and especially Christian leaders, are called to be servants to be under rowers for Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, caretakers of a gospel message. And our faithfulness to that service, our faithfulness to that stewardship will be judged and commended by the Lord on the last day. And today, in our brief little focus on verses 6 and 7, we'll see Paul apply the principles of the preceding passage to the mindset of the Corinthian believers. And we'll see him confront their flawed thinking. And as Paul confronts this church from 2,000 years ago, we'll see that our flawed thinking is confronted as well. God's word is living and active. It wasn't merely written for a specific group of people way back then on the other side of the world. It is alive today and in the hands of the Holy Spirit will reveal to us who we are and who Christ is. And with that in mind, let's come to our text expectantly this morning, expecting God to speak to us through the proclamation of his word to the end that we might be made more holy and that God might be glorified. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 4. I'll start reading in verse 1, and we'll focus today on verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of our Lord. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not even aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Thus ends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come to you in need. We ask that you would build us up, that you would encourage us, that you would confront us, that you would make us more like Christ, that you would build up our faith, and that by believing we may have life and life abundantly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Today I'd like for us to see in our text a principle to be learned, a pitfall to be avoided, and a posture to be maintained. A principle to be learned, a pitfall to be avoided, and a posture to be maintained. Let's look at verse 6 and see first the principle to be learned. Paul says in this verse, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Paul says he's applied these things that we might learn. What things in particular, Paul? What are the things you want us to learn? And what are these things that you've applied? Well, he's talking most directly about the preceding verses, the metaphors for ministry from chapter 3, and his description of Christian service in the first five verses of this chapter. He's talking about the picture of Christian service being a field where one person plants, another person waters, but God gives the growth. One person lays a foundation, another builds upon the foundation, but Christ himself is the foundation. One person lays a stone, another one puts up a beam, but the whole project belongs to God. It is his temple. We are the workers, God is the foreman. We are the laborers, God is the architect. We are the stones, but God himself is building and filling his temple. And for last week, we are the servants, the under rowers in the belly of the boat, serving away, but God is the captain of the vessel. We are stewards, but God is the owner. These are the principles that he's been applying. And he says in verse 6 that he's applied them specifically to the situation in Corinth surrounding Paul and Apollos. The church was split in its allegiances. Some of the people wanted Paul. Some of the people wanted Apollos. Some of the people wanted somebody else. But Paul has brought them back to first principles. God is the central focus, not the worker. God is of prime importance, not the messenger. And they had forgotten that. They had forgotten what they had been taught, what was written. And that's what's behind this little statement, which is quite obscure in the Greek. Paul says, I've applied these things so that you might not go beyond what is written. Now, this is not an explicit allusion to a particular Old Testament text. But the usage seems to be akin to what Jesus does throughout the Gospels when he says, Have you not read? Do you not know the Scriptures? The Corinthians were going beyond what is written, seeking things that God does not or even does not seek or even require of his servants. They were fussing over things that God overlooks and they were adding to God's written word. And so in a sense, Paul is telling the Corinthians something like our modern exhortation to keep your finger on the text. Don't stray from what is written. Keep scripture as your bound, as your guide. And this is an important principle for fairly obvious reasons. When scripture no longer remains our standard and we lose everything, it's not like we simply become freed from any sort of standard. When you give up scripture as your standard, you necessarily submit to another. 
It becomes either the standard of man or of popular opinion or of our parents or of some other religious book or even our own conscience. We don't and we can't exist without some sense of truth, some standard of what is right. And that's what the Corinthians had done. They had drifted beyond scripture and assumed the standards of the world. That was the principle to be learned and a principle for us to be reminded of again briefly this morning. I've preached about that particular topic in the preceding sermon, so I won't linger here. But we should be on, constantly on guard against adopting the principles from the world and going beyond what is written. For when we do that, we are in danger of all sorts of problems. Which leads to our second point this morning, a pitfall to be avoided. A pitfall to be avoided. Look again with me at verse 6. I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And so the pitfall that Paul is warning against, warning the Corinthians against, is to avoid being puffed up, of being prideful. The imagery is of being swollen, swollen with conceit. The specific context is that they were puffed up in their allegiances over their favorite leaders. They were puffed up in favor of one against another or in favor of one leader as opposed to another. He doesn't want them to be so lifted up by their pride and foolish zeal that they destroy the church. That's the specific context of the exhortation against pride. But the general principle for us to remember is that pride brings major problems. In fact, one of the hallmarks of a prideful person is that they can't see it. Pride blinds us. Pride makes a man blind to his own sin. And that's why Paul asked the first rhetorical question. He says that he applied these things, that they would not be puffed up in favor of one against another. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? We could say, who judges you any different? Who comes to a different conclusion regarding you? Or to use a more modern phrase, who made you so special? Who is it that's so wonderful among you? Who is it that's so wise and so discerning and so intelligent and so sophisticated that he is the reason for his own position? The rhetorical question is meant to expose to them their own pride. Their imagined maturity is actually demonstrating their own immaturity. They thought they were so wise and acting according to their wisdom, but their wisdom is worldly wisdom demonstrating their own foolishness. And by dividing the church over their opinions of what is best, they're actually demonstrating that they're the worst. In short, their pride has blinded them. Blindness is one of the fruits of pride. Pride distorts our perception. It hinders our ability to see ourselves rightly and to judge situations rightly. Pride makes men make illogical choices. As they say, sin makes you stupid. But pride in particular makes you blind. That's one of the reasons Paul says in Romans 12, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, or to think with a sane mind, we could translate it. See, pride makes us lose our sanity, to think without sober judgment, to act in ways that are inconsistent and foolish. Think about a few examples from the Old Testament about, about how pride blinded someone. It was the pride of the Israelites that led them to make a golden calf and to bow down to it. 
They had just been led out of Egypt. God split open the Red Sea and then used it to crush the scariest army on the planet. And then God, not the Israelites, brought them manna in the wilderness and fed them from nothing. But the moment that Moses goes up on the mountain, they create for themselves an idol of gold. They take off their jewelry, they melt it down, and then they bow down to the thing that they just made. How silly does that sound? But how blind would you have to be? You've been led out of slavery by God, and God did everything. You didn't do a single thing, and yet you bow down and enslave yourself to a statue, to something that is impotent, that is lifeless, that is something that you've made. Pride makes you blind to the enormity of your sin. Similarly, God brings the Israelites into the promised land, and he gives them a whole book of how they are to retain the land. What should they do to honor God and to make him happy? Here are all the laws and all the rules and all the warnings. He left them no doubt. And what did Israel do? Israel, it said of Israel in Deuteronomy 32:15 that Israel grew fat and stout and sleek and forsook the God who made them and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Israel got comfortable. And forsook God. Israel allowed pride to creep in and grew blind to his sin. Israel forgot his utter dependence upon God and that distracted him, emboldened him in his sin and made him to wander away from the God of his salvation. But this danger isn't just for Old Testament saints either. How often do we grow sluggish, indeed fat and sleek like the Israelites in our faith? And we allow pride to pull us away from a vibrant Christian life dependent upon the Father. Think back in your life. When you were going through a tough time, when you were going through a trial and God used that trial to drive you to your knees, looking back on that trial, do you consider that time to be a blessing because it pushed you closer to him? It humbled you by reminding you of your need of him. God humbled you, and with that humility came a keener vision of your dependence upon him. Your humility, or really your humiliation, by that trial granted you sight, gave you better vision. And if that's the case, if our being humbled by trials reminds us of our dependence and drives us back to God, then the opposite is true of well, that pride fools us with an illusion of our independence. And of our own self-sufficiency. Pride makes us think we can do it on our own. In short, pride makes us blind. We see this in our lives too. How often have you spoken too quickly? Spoken pridefully. Only having later to pull your foot out of your mouth and eat a big slice of humble pie. How often have you seen someone else that's so arrogant that nobody wants to be around them, and they are completely unaware of how their pride repels people. They're blind to it. That's why they say pride is like having terribly bad breath. Everyone around you knows it, but you can't, you don't notice. Scripture makes clear that pride is not merely a problem of perception. It is a perception problem, but it is more than that. Pride will blind a man so much that he will walk right into a pit, Proverbs says. Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit comes before destruction. God will oppose the proud, Scripture says. He is an enemy to the proud. He will judge the prideful. Pride isn't merely a perception 
problem. It's a sin problem. It will bring the downfall and judgment of millions of people who lack the eyes to see the danger, the pit, right in front of them. So I ask you, are you a proud person? Have you humility of heart to admit that you are indeed a sinner who thinks more highly of himself than he should? Or do you think that your intelligence, your cleverness, your status will keep you from judgment? Do you dare ignore God's clear word to you and instead stand in judgment of him and his righteousness? If so, then be warned. You are blind. You cannot see the truth. Your pride has corrupted your vision. You stand but a hair's breadth away from eternal judgment in hell. Hear the word of Scripture and instead turn to Jesus as your Savior. For Scripture says that God gives grace to the humble and Christ was the most humble servant to ever live. He humbled himself to the point of becoming a slave. He lowered himself down from heaven and he took on human flesh and lived a life in this fallen world and died a terrible death in order to redeem a proud people. He didn't have to, but he willingly chose to. He would have been perfectly just to judge every human being as a prideful sinner forever. But instead he committed himself to come and to save the bride that the father had set apart for him. He didn't come with glorious armies, and he didn't dwell in mansions made of gold. He came and died alone, having no earthly possessions of his own, no wealth to his name. He didn't speak when he shouldn't have. He perfectly spoke the truth of God in love. In short, he was perfectly humble, thus granting him perfect vision to see the path of God laid out in front of him. And because he was the perfectly humble one, he has been raised to life. And he rules at the right hand of the Father, even now. And God grants grace to the humble now, because he grants you humility and grace through Christ, the humble and gracious one. Come to Christ and be forgiven of your pride. Confess it and be cleansed of it and have your vision restored through renewed humility found in Christ. Don't go on boasting in your strength. Don't continue to divide relationships because of your opinions. Trust in Christ whom had nothing and became nothing, so that in him you might be granted all things. And if you're trusting in Christ, then keep a close eye on your pride. Check yourself regularly. Surround yourself with wise people who love you enough to point out your pride, even when you're blind to it. We need one another. That's one of the reasons why God gives the good gift of a spouse and of godly friends, if only to keep us humble. Trust in Christ. Be encouraged at his humility to come as our lowly Savior and stay close to him that you may avoid the pitfall of prideful blindness in this life. Finally, we've seen a principle to be learned and a pitfall to be avoided. Now let's look at a posture to be maintained. A posture to be maintained. Paul says he applied these things that they might learn not to go beyond what was written that they would not be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? And the re implied answer to Paul's rhetorical question is nothing. Everything the Corinthians had was a gift. Their leaders were a gift. Their spiritual gifts were a gift. That's why they're named spiritual gifts. But they were proud. 
They were proud of these things that they had received. We'll see later in this book that they're proud of the gracious gifts of the Holy Spirit that he had given to them. Pride makes us blind and deceives us to believe that we really have earned something. We're really pretty great. We're something pretty special because of our talents or because of the leadership. But humility is the opposite of pride and it bears the opposite fruit. If pride blinds us to our true situation, humility opens our eyes to reality. It allows us to see our genuine position of dependence. Humility shows us that everything really is a gift, and thus humility will bear within us the posture of gratitude. Gratitude is the posture of a humble Christian. A proud Christian, like the Corinthians, will demand that he gets his way, that his guy is in the pulpit, that his opinion gets heard. But a humble Christian will be thankful to God for whatever gifts he has been given. He'll be thankful for the leaders that have been placed over him and for the gifts that have been given to his church. And that's because a humble person really knows what he actually deserves. A humble man knows that he's a sinner and that all he deserves is death. Sinners have violated God's holy law and thus deserve eternal punishment in hell. So for a humble man, anything better than judgment is a gift of grace. A truly humble person can be satisfied and thankful in any situation in life because he knows that no matter how bad this life can get, he actually deserves a lot worse. With gratitude, we can be content with very little because we know that even the very little we have is more than we deserve. With gratitude, we can be content through relational difficulties because what we deserve instead is to be alone in hell. With gratitude, we can be joyful amidst trials because we have the humility and the vision to see that those trials drive us back to Christ for our good. They're being worked out for our good, Scripture says. A humble person really is the person with the keenest vision in this life. He sees things as they really are because they see themselves in proper proportion, in proper relation to God. They're not puffed up by pride, thinking that they're better than they actually are. But instead, they humbly recognize that everything they have is a gift, both in the good times and the bad. And because it is from God and for their good, even in the hard times, they can have a posture of thankfulness, regardless of what is going on around them. Do you have that kind of posture? Do you find yourself thankful in situations in your life that are difficult? Are you grateful for everything that you receive, both the pleasant and the unpleasant, knowing that all of it comes from the hands of a loving Father who gives you what you need? A prideful person cannot have a posture of gratitude because he thinks he deserves better. He can't be thankful. He's quick to grumble when a decision is made he doesn't like. He's quick to stiffen his neck when he comes under God's rod of discipline because he believes that he deserves better. A proud man pouts when people don't ask his opinion or don't follow his advice. A proud man thinks that the rules don't apply to him in the way that they should apply to everybody else. That's why we see in Scripture the first instance of pride and the blindness that resulted from it. Pride led Adam to take the fruit that was forbidden to him. Pride led him to distrust the commands and the promises of God. Pride led him to think that he could be equal with God. Pride led him to disbelieve that he would actually die if he broke God's law. Pride led Adam to be blind. 
He was blind to the whole garden of fruit around him that God had graciously given him and instead wanted the one thing he was told he couldn't have. He was blind to the good creation that was under his jurisdiction, and he was blind to the already stated consequences of his sin. Blind to the fact that billions of lives would suffer under sin and death because of his pride. Pride makes us blind to the consequences of our sin, particularly the effects of it on people around us. But a posture of humility, a posture of gratitude will grant us the ability to see things for how they really are, to have a proper perception of our circumstances and our situation, and will compel us to praise the giver of all good gifts. Do you find yourself to be a grateful person? How often do you thank God? And I don't merely mean rote prayers of, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this food. I mean, we should say those prayers, and we should mean them. But if that's the extent of your thanking God, just get it out of the way so I can shovel food in, then we need to be watching out. Pride might be blinding you if you're never thankful to God, if you never express gratitude. You might be fooling yourself into believing that you're stronger than you really are, deceiving yourself into thinking that the things around you really aren't a gift. What do you have that you have not received? In closing, we need to remember, and we need to remember frequently, the gracious gifts of God that he freely chooses to give to his children, the most precious of which is salvation through Christ. Christ has come and died in the place of a prideful and blind bride. A bride who was otherwise on the path of hell, ready to fall into a pit of judgment. But praise be to God that he has acted by sending his humble son to earn the grace needed for this bride to be saved. He became nothing and demonstrated true humility so that we might be redeemed from pride. He grants us, through our union with him, proper humility and right vision. Stay close to Christ, keeping watch on your pride that bubbles up within each of us and fight hard to maintain a posture of gratitude. For it's only in such a posture, on our knees before the cross, that we can actually see things for how they really are. And if you have not yet come to Christ, then don't delay any longer. Don't be content with the blindness of this world and of Satan both of which tempt you to believe that you're better than you actually are and that you're safe in your sin and that you actually deserve better than what God has given you. Come instead to a Savior who has earned better for you, who has died to give you sight and who lives even now to grant his good gifts of grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of forgiveness, for the gift of salvation, for the life that Christ lived in our place, for the righteousness that he has earned through his humility and love. Lord, we ask that you would work, that you would take your word and plant it deep within our hearts and that we might receive with meekness this implanted word, which, as James says, is able to save our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.